Exodus 33 and 34 in their entirety. The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To you, your offspring, I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the Tent of Meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the Tent of Meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up, and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, Bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken, I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim you before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablet, which you broke. Be ready by the morning, and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai, and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. 
No one shall come up with you, and let no one be seen throughout all the mountains. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai, as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. And he said, If I now have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. And he said, Behold, I am making a covenant. Before all your people I will do marvels, such as not have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among you, whom you shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Take care, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars, and break their pillars, and cut down their asherim, For you shall worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you eat of his sacrifice, and you take of their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods, and make your sons whore after their gods. You shall not make for yourself any gods of cast metal. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, as I commanded you, at the time appointed in the month Abib, for in the month Abib you came out from Egypt. All that open the womb are mine, all your male livestock, the firstborn of cow and sheep, the firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. All the firstborn of your sons you shall redeem, and none shall appear before me empty-handed. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and harvest you shall rest. You shall observe the feast of wheat, the first fruits of wheat harvest, and the feast of ingathering at the year's end. Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God, the God of Israel. For I will cast out nations before you and enlarge your borders. No one shall covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord, your God, three times in the year. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened, or let the sacrifice of the feast of the Passover remain until morning. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. And the Lord said to Moses, Write these words, for in accordance with these words I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water, and he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai, 
with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterwards, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining, and Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. There was an elementary school teacher, and she was an art teacher. She was teaching a drawing class to her students one day, and in the back of the room there was a six-year-old who was particularly vigorous in her drawing. She was there at her desk, and her arms were kind of curled around, and she was vigorously working on her drawing on this art project. And so the teacher was fascinated, and she went over to the student. She said, what is it that you're so passionately creating? What are you drawing? And the six-year-old didn't even stop. She didn't even look up and she said, I'm drawing a picture of God. And the art teacher said, well, nobody knows what God looks like. And she stopped her work, looked up at the art teacher, and they said, they will in a little while. (laughs) What does God look like? What does God look like? Just this morning, at the end of our worship team rehearsal, my daughter Abigail came up to me and she goes, well, are you going to use that Shel Silverstein poem? And I said, what Shel Silverstein poem? She goes, the one about what God looks like. And I said, there's a Shel Silverstein poem about what God looks like. And so she looked it up. It's a short one. It says, George said, God is short and fat. Nick said, no, he's tall and lean. Len said, with a long white beard. No, said John, he's shaven clean. Will said he's black. Bob said he's white. Rhonda Rose said he's a she. I smiled but never showed them all. The autographed photograph God sent to me. And that's what Moses got today. He got an autographed photograph of what God looks like. Because in today's passage, God tells us what he looks like. You see, Moses, we heard him early on, and he requested, God, what do you look like? Show me your glory. Show me your face. What do you look like, God? Now, you remember this account, what Ashley just read for us today, follows after last week. Last week was the disastrous account of the idolatry with the golden calf. Israel had fallen into idolatry, creating this golden calf, breaking the covenant, the relationship that God has established with his people. And Moses had interceded with God, ensuring that the people as a whole were not going to be destroyed. But yet, what we find here is that God's future dwelling amongst His people is in question. His people will not be destroyed, but will God dwell amongst His people? Because you might remember, right before the golden calf, we had five really exciting chapters of description. 
five really exciting chapters of description about the building of the tabernacle. The tabernacle was to be the place where the Lord dwelt amongst His people. Exodus 25, verse 8, we heard, Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell where? In their midst. Because, friends, understand that that is the very heart of God. We don't have a God who wants to dwell at a distance looking down on us, but a God who, who wants to be in the very midst of His people. And so He's given these specific instructions on the building of the tabernacle, and the tabernacle is going to be located right in the center of camp. God is going to dwell in the midst of His people. It's actually the purpose for which God delivered His people from slavery in Egypt. He delivered His people so that He could dwell in their midst. And that's what we heard in Exodus 29, starting in verse 45. I will dwell among the people of Israel. I will be their God. They shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt. Why? That I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Friends, everything, everything in the book of Exodus has been moving towards this climactic moment when God dwells amongst His people. This has been the purpose. It's all been coming to this point. And now it's all in jeopardy. And now it's become a giant question mark. Can and will God dwell amongst His people? I mean, Exodus 33 is disheartening. The the chapter's heartbreaking. Now, despite their idolatry and their covenant breaking, the Lord's not disowned His people. And as such, He says in Exodus 33, I'm going to be faithful and I will fulfill the promise that I made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give you the promised land of Canaan. I will fulfill my promise. I will still send my angel before you to drive out the Canaanites from the land. But, did you hear verse 3? Exodus 33.3 Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. I will not go among you. The tabernacle which was to be placed among the people is seeming like a dangerous idea. How can a holy God live amongst an unholy and stiff-necked people? Aren't they just likely to be consumed because of their sin? So the Lord says, go into the land. I'm sending my angel. I'm going to fulfill my promise. But I will not be among you. Friends, do you hear how tragic and heartbreaking this scene is? And all of the details of Exodus 33 talk about this estrangement. Notice that Moses goes out to meet with the Lord, and where does he meet with the Lord? It's not in the glorious tabernacle in the center of camp, but what's described here as the tent of meeting. And did you catch where the tent of meeting has been pitched? Look at verse 7. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. 
Do you notice the operative word through that? Outside. Far away. Among the people? No. No. Outside. At least three times we have this driven home. The Lord is outside. He's far off. Why? Because, friends, our sin estranges us from God. It separates us from God. Years later, the Lord spoke through the prophet Isaiah and said in Isaiah 59, verse 2, But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have hidden His face from you so He does not hear. And we see this truth quite physically enacted in the camp of Israel. The Lord is outside of the camp. And He says, My angel will go before you. I will give you the land, but I will not be amongst you. Your sin has separated us. I will not forsake you, but yet your sin has created a separation. And friends, the response of the people communicates just the gravity of this situation. What we see, the people take off their ornaments, their earrings, their necklaces, their adornments. This is a sign of mourning. This is a sign of repentance. It's a sign of brokenness. And verse 8 says that whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up and each would stand at the tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. I mean, they stand there and they watch Moses go. They can't turn away because their eyes are fixed on him because he is their only hope. And once Moses couldn't be seen anymore, what does it say? They stood at the entrances to their own tents and they worshipped. They pleaded. They begged God. The situation is utterly desperate. Moses enters the tent of meeting and what does he do? It says he intercedes with the Lord face to face as a man speaks with his friend. And friends, we know that we know that nobody can see God face to face and live. So this is emphasizing the intimacy with which Moses could stand before the Lord. And in that intimacy, what does he do? He intercedes. He prays for Israel. And friends, what's Moses' plea? His plea is, Lord, it's not enough. Lord, it's not enough. Sending your angel ahead of us, Lord, that's not enough. Your blessings alone are not enough. If your presence will not go with us, don't send us away from here. We would rather live without your blessings than live without you. Church, are we so desperate for the presence of the Lord amongst us? Do we mourn and grieve when our sins separate us from the Lord? The Gospel, the good news is that in Jesus Christ, you and I will never be forsaken from the Lord. We can never be taken from His hand because He holds us fast. But yet our sins separate us from Him. They thrust Him outside the camp. They hinder the communion, the intimacy, the relationship the Lord desires to have with His people. Church, are we too easily satisfied? Are we too easily satisfied with the blessings of the Lord when what we really need is the presence? Of the Lord. Moses said, The blessings of the Lord, they're not enough. Lord, if we don't have your presence, we don't have anything. And, church, are we too easily satisfied? Are you too easily satisfied? Too easily satisfied with his blessings, with his healing, with his provision, with his peace? Or do you long for the very presence of God? 
His intimacy, closeness with Him. Moses says, Lord, this nation is Your people. It's Your presence, Lord, that we need because it's only Your presence that sets us apart from everyone else. Friends, the presence of the Lord is the only thing that made them and that makes us distinct from every other people. Moses says, if your presence will not go with us, do not send us from here. Church, the only thing that makes us today distinct from any other community group or any other social organization is the presence of the Lord amongst us. And if we lose that, we've lost everything. Church, if Jesus leaves the building, we've lost our reason for being. The Gospel The good news, the presence of Christ must be our highest good. It must be our greatest treasure. It must be our purpose and our passion. We must long for the very presence of Christ among us. He must be the pearl of great price for which we sell all other things that we might have it. He must be the treasure in the field for which we give up everything that we might possess Him. It is the presence of the Lord that makes us distinct from all other people, all other organizations, all other religions. And so as Moses says, Lord, if you will not go, if your presence will not be amongst us, don't send us from here because we don't just want your blessings. We need your presence. And church, do we feel the same way today? Are we content with having his blessing when he desires to give us his presence, which is what we really and truly need. And the Lord grants Moses plea. The Lord says, I've heard your plea, and I will go with this people. I will dwell amongst them. My presence will be amongst them. And the Lord, and then Moses makes this request of God in verse 18, show me your glory. Please show me your glory. Now, this might sound like at this point that Moses is being selfish or sensational. Like, give me some kind of ecstatic experience with you now, God, now that things are good. But remember, Moses stands right now as the covenant mediator. He's standing as the representative of Israel before God. And he's saying, God, show me your presence. Show me who you are. Show me that you are really going to do what you say you do. Just like you revealed yourself in glory and power on the top of Mount Sinai, reveal yourself in glory and power and pledge to me that that glory will be glory that will dwell within the tabernacle amongst your people. Show me your glory. And the Lord says to Moses, you can't see my face. Because friends, for any one of us, To look unveiled and undiminished upon the glory of God would just kill us. We can't look upon such an incredible glory unfiltered. It will just destroy us. But God does offer to take Moses to the cleft of a rock and reveal his glory. He goes, I'll reveal to you what I look like, Moses. I will reveal myself to you. And that's what we see happen in chapter 34. In chapter 34 of Exodus, using categories that I borrowed from another pastor, the chapter could be divided into three sections. Verses 1 through 9, the character of the Lord is revealed. Let me walk this way. Ah, Verses 10 through 16, the covenant of the Lord is renewed. And verses 17 through 35, the commands of the Lord are repeated. 
the character of the Lord's revealed, the covenant of the Lord is renewed, the commands of the Lord are repeated. Now, friends, remember, the covenant of the Lord has been violated, so the covenant between the Lord and His people needs to be renewed, and that's what we see in verses 10 through 16. Plus, if the Lord, if the Lord is going to dwell amongst His people, they need to again be reminded of His commands, and we have a list of commands at the end of chapter 34. Now, the list of commands is by no means exhaustive, but friends, they're all around one question. Is Israel going to trust the Lord? The, the list of commands at the end of chapter 34 is not an exhaustive list. We heard a far more comp- comprehensive list earlier on. But remember, Israel just fell into idolatry. They just started worshiping a golden calf. And so this list of commands, if you look at them, are really all asking, Israel, are you going to worship me the way I've commanded you to worship me? Are you going to trust me? Because notice it starts, verse 17, don't worship graven images. Uh, That's what you just did. You know, 18 through 20, will, will you trust me by giving me the first and the best of your fields and flocks? Verses 19 through 26, will you trust me by resting in me, by gathering for worship as I commanded, by sacrificing only as I commanded? Israel's just been faithless with the golden calf, worshiping as they chose, and he goes, listen, are you going to be faithful and worship as I've commanded? So remember my command. So the Lord renews his covenant in 10 through 16. He repeats some commands in 17 through 35, but I want to spend the remainder of our time together considering the first nine verses of the chapter where the character of the Lord is revealed. What does God look like? That's the question we're asking. Verses 1 through 9 are what does God look like? And these verses answer the question. And in fact, these might even be, church, these might even be the most important verses in the whole Old Testament. This might be the most important key passage in the Old Testament. Some theologians have called this the center of Old Testament theology because it is the place where God describes Himself. Do you want to know what God's like? We don't have to guess. God describes Himself in verses 6 and 7. And these verses are so key that we find them repeated throughout the rest of the Old Testament. We find them in the Law. We find them in the Prophets. We find them in the Psalms repeatedly, time and time again. Because Moses says, show me your glory, show me yourself. And God reveals Himself. He goes, this is what I look like, Moses. So that you can know me. This is what I look like. So Moses ascends the mountain, two replacement stone tablets in his hand, and the Lord stands there with Moses and proclaims his name. And friends, as we've said before, the name of the Lord is more than just a name. It's the very essence, the very presence of the Lord. And the Lord reveals His very essence. This is who I am. And so let's look again at verses 6 and 7. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Let's break that down. The Lord, the Lord of God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger. That's not what many people today would expect God to first say about Himself, is it? 
You know, it's kind of a popular idea out there that God is angry and critical. You know, as the old Far Side comic, so there you go, pictures, many believe God's fingers hover constantly above some divine keyboard, just waiting and gleefully waiting for you to mess up so he can press the smite button. Like God lives with some kind of divine chip on his shoulder saying, just give me a reason, punk. You know, almost 20 years ago, Jim Carrey in the movie Bruce Almighty complained. He said, God is a mean kid sitting on an anthill with a magnifying glass, and I'm the ant. Have you ever heard people describe God that way? Maybe you felt like God was that way. That God's somehow against you. That he's out there looking for your smallest fault so that he can burn you like a mean kid with a magnifying glass so he can press that smite button. But instead of revealing himself as an angry God, the very first thing that God reveals himself as is a compassionate God. Compassionate, merciful and gracious, slow to anger. God says, anger is neither my default nor is it my desire. I am merciful and gracious. And friends, this truth is repeated throughout Scripture. This truth has been verified to Israel how many times already? As they've wandered through the wilderness, how many times have Israel turned away from them, disobeyed him, dishonored and grumbled against him, but yet he's slow to anger. And when they repent and when they return to him, he's always compassionate, merciful and gracious. And friends, that's good news. That's good news because as we open singing today, Everyone needs compassion. A love that's never-ending. Let mercy fall on me. I guess you can't see the lyrics. (laughs) Everyone needs forgiveness, the kindness of a Savior, the hope of nations. Friends, compassion is what we all most need because let's face it, we're not good people. When I'm honest with myself, I have to confess I'm a lot like Israel. I've disobeyed. I've walked away from God. I've harmed myself and others in this world by the wrongs that I've done and the good things I've failed to do. You know, when I read the news headlines, when we read the news headlines, we know there's something wrong with this world. And friends, the something that's wrong with this world is the something that's wrong with humanity. And the something that's wrong with humanity is something that's also wrong with me. We are all part of the problem with this world. We have all done wrong. And yet God reveals Himself as not reacting quickly. He doesn't react in just anger and righteous anger and wrath against our sin. Friends, if God treated us as our sins deserve, then in the morning, you would not make it from from bed to the breakfast table to eat your toast because you would be toast. If God treated us as our sins deserve, we would not make it that far. People often criticize God and they go, well, why doesn't God do something? Like, why doesn't God bring justice? Why doesn't God punish sin and evil in this world? And friends, all those criticisms miss the fact that if God acted right now and treated all sin and evil the way it deserves, then you and I would be done. Game over. But instead, the Lord reveals, He says, I'm slow to anger. He's giving us an opportunity to repent. He's giving us an opportunity to turn to Him. Because He's merciful and gracious to all who turn to Him. And with Him, there is forgiveness. And you might ask why. Why 
would the God who created all things and who sustains all things be compassionate to us when we deserve anything but compassion? That's because of the second part of God's self-revelation here. God says He's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands of generations, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Steadfast love. It's used twice here. The Hebrew word is hesed. The old King James translates it as loving kindness. And my favorite children's Bible renders this word as God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. I love that. Because God's steadfast love, His covenant love, is never stopping. It's never giving up. It's never breaking. It's always and forever love. So why doesn't God just treat His people as our sins deserve? Because of His steadfast love. And the steadfast love is paired here with the Lord's faithfulness. His people might be unfaithful. They might wander away from Him. But friends, God is unchangingly, unyieldingly, stubbornly, and eternally faithful. We're going to close the service today. And when we do, we'll sing, Great is Thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There's no shadow of turning with Thee. Thou changest not Thy compassions. They fail not. As Thou hast been, Thou forever will be. Friends, He's faithful. He's unchanging. His compassions do not fail, even when my lyrics fail. And that means that those who turn and those who return to Him can find the forgiveness that they need. And in fact, there's three different words used here in verse 7 to speak of the evil which you and I do. Iniquity refers to an action that involves crooked behavior to do evil. Transgressions refers to a breach of relationship or rebellion. And sin means to miss the way or miss the mark or fall short of requirements. The Lord gives us a comprehensive list here. And He says, whatever you've done, church, hear this, whatever you've done, intentional or unintentional, evil that you've done or good that you've left undone, whether you tried and failed or you didn't even bother to try at all, the whole gamut of your wrongdoing can be forgiven if you will come to Me. Because I am merciful and gracious God, slow to anger, full of steadfast love, and I'm eternally faithful to forgive. But notice that that's accompanied with a dire warning in verse 7. It says the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. He says, I'm a just God. I can't just sweep sin under the rug. I can't just minimize what you've done and go, oh, don't worry. Your sin isn't that sinful. Uh, it's, It's not really that bad. Or I'll just let that one go. Those who remain in their sin can't receive the Lord's forgiveness. Those who remain in sin remain in guilt, while those who repent of sin receive His grace. Friends, to remain in sin is to remain in guilt, but to turn to Him is to receive His grace. Where do you stand right now? Do you stand in guilt? Or do you stand in grace? Because the Lord cannot and will not just clear the guilty who remain in sin, but He will give grace to all who repent of it. And so what stops you? What stops you from receiving this good news that we sang of this morning? That our sins, they are many, but His mercy is more. And that's what the Lord says here. And we should probably take a minute and ask, well, what's with this closing statement about visiting the sins of the fathers on the children? We don't like that part. When we read this, we often leave that portion out. 
because that's hard to understand. First, let's understand it's not a statement about God punishing innocent children for their parents' sins, because that's not how God operates. In fact, through the prophet Ezekiel, in Ezekiel 18.20, the Lord says, The soul whose sin shall die, the son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself. The wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. So this is definitely not a statement about God punishing children for the sins of their parents, but this is a warning, church. It is a warning about the nature of sin. Now, in the ancient world, three to four generations would often live under one roof. And this passage reminds us that the unrepented sins of one generation often affect the whole household. Friends, I watch this in my own house. Too often I go, why are my children acting in that way? And then I find the answer in the mirror. That's something I struggle with. Now, my children are responsible for their own behavior. But friends, the particular sins with which they struggle and how they struggle, I often find are sins with which I struggle. And parents, haven't you seen that as well? If I don't confess and repent turning from my sin, dealing with my stuff, then often those sins end up visited upon my children. And we see the generational consequences of sin today. Alcoholism, addiction, immorality, broken homes, anger, abuse, dishonesty, immoral behavior on the part of the parents often results in the same type of struggle and suffering for the children and the grandchildren and beyond, doesn't it? Haven't we seen that? All too often, dysfunction and sins are learned and repeated from generation to generation unless unless the cycle is broken by repentance. So friends, the bad news that you and I all experience is this kind of generational effect of sin. But the good news that this passage declares is that God's grace is greater than our sin. You need to notice that the effects and consequences of our sin are spoken of in terms of living memory. Three to four generations, it says. But verse 7, verse 7, it says, The Lord's steadfast love and faithfulness are to a thousand generations. Church, a thousand generations is longer than recorded human history. The effects of your sin, three to four generations. My steadfast love, a thousand generations. Sin's effects are limited, but my faithfulness is unlimited. The good news is no matter how great your sin and the suffering because of it, His faithfulness is greater still. And friends, that is good news indeed. Because maybe you've come here today and you are struggling and suffering with the effects of sin. Maybe you're here tormented by memory of sins that have been committed against you. Maybe you're stuck in the rut of sinful patterns and choices that you've learned from previous generations. Maybe you're chained by the power of your own bad choices, addictions, and sinful habits. Maybe you're bound by the guilt for the wrongs that you've done and the good things that you've left undone. Friends, the gospel, the good news that this passage reveals is that all who repent and turn to the Lord can be forgiven and can be set free. Because sin's power can be broken. And friends, the even greater news for us today, the even greater news for us today is that God's revelation of Himself and His steadfast love to Moses were good. 
but it wasn't even God's final and most perfect revelation of His mercy, grace, and steadfast love to us. Because that He gave to us in His own Son, Jesus Christ. As we've already heard in this sermon series, the Apostle John opened his Gospel writing in John 1.14, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We've seen His glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Remember Moses' prayer, Lord, show me your glory. John writes, we've seen now His glory. The glory that Moses wanted to see, you and I have seen in the face of Jesus Christ. To look upon the face of Jesus Christ is to look upon the glory of God. The words to Moses that the Lord spoke to reveal Himself, those words were incarnated to us. They took on flesh and they dwelt amongst us. This statement that Jesus came to us full in grace and truth refers to the exact two words that the Lord said to Moses. Abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Full of grace and truth. The Lord Jesus is the revelation. He is the incarnation. He is the perfect revealing of God's love to us. So what does God look like? We see God in the face of Jesus Christ. We, in Jesus Christ, we see God's steadfast love and His faithfulness. We experience His mercy and grace. We find the forgiveness of the Lord. In Jesus, we see the face of God. And Jesus Christ came in order that by His death and His life and His resurrection, we could experience now for ourselves the forgiveness of sin's penalty, freedom from sin's power, and new and everlasting life with God. So what does God look like? Church, Moses got only a glimpse. He got only a glimpse. But you and I get to see the very fullness and experience the fullness in Jesus Christ. He is the glory of God. And friends, now that you've seen Him, the only question that remains is, how will you respond to Him? Let's pray. Father, thank You for revealing Yourself. Revealing Yourself not only to Moses, but more importantly, and more perfectly, revealing Yourself to us in Your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank You for making a way that we might be saved. Thank You for making a way that our sins might be forgiven. Thank You for making a way that we, who've been driven far off by our sin, might be brought near, reconciled, forgiven. Lord, I pray for those here who are just checking You out. Father, I pray that they wouldn't hear this and and walk away without considering, without submitting. I pray that those of us who've heard these words today might hear them anew. And that, Father, we might find and experience now the power that we need. The power of forgiveness. The power that breaks sin's effects upon us and upon future generations. And that You might transform us And then send us, send us forth into the world with the good news of your great faithfulness and love. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Amen. In closing, stand and sing with us the great Christian hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness.